Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? First, it was tobacco, then opioids. Now there's a new wave of litigation against corporations. The claim is that their products are causing harm. The products are fossil fuels. The harm is related to the effects of climate change, wildfires, extreme weather, floods, and the damage they create. This week, we dig into new research from Harvard that finds ExxonMobil use specific words and phrases to shape the public's view of fossil fuels, climate change, and just who is to blame. Here's a hint. It's at least partly us, you and me, the consumers. Later on, we'll hear the company's response. Let's get started. Though the current lawsuits are almost all in the United States, there are cities in Canada that are considering launching their own lawsuits against fossil fuel companies for the millions, even billions of dollars needed to deal with the effects of climate change. Toronto is one of them. Before the pandemic, it held committee hearings on the idea. Our next speaker is Aviva Gail Bunsel. Hi, thank you for the opportunity to speak here. My name is Aviva. I'm 18 years old. I voted for the first time in this past election, and it was really exciting. I want to show my support of this motion, of pursuing compensation for the cost of climate change to the City of Toronto, and to say some of what is on my mind about the crisis we are in. I remember very clearly the first time I learned about climate change. I was sitting in my classroom in grade four, and my teacher said, look out the window. You see the snow falling and the sun shining. It's a nice winter day, and everything looks okay. But it is not. Our earth is in crisis. And at the time, from what I remember, I was shocked and scared and wondering what was being done. What could I do to help? And was it too late? I'm still asking the same questions nine years later. The only thing I now know is that it is not too late. But we need to take this seriously, and we need to act now. I ask that you support this motion because at the moment, we do not know the whole detailed impact climate change has had on Toronto. It is important to hold fossil fuel companies and major polluters accountable for putting profit and money over the lives of future generations. It is especially disturbing if, like with the tobacco industry, they knew about the negative impacts but carried on anyways. If they can pay some of the price, then maybe the City of Toronto could focus more money and resources on projects which could help the Earth. And the problem isn't only the fossil fuel companies but the great dependence our society has on fossil fuels. We need to make a more sustainable system immediately, and this will take everybody, and all governments, taking action and prioritizing the environment. This is a great opportunity for Toronto and Canada to become a leader on making real sustainable solutions. And I ask you, as the Infrastructure and Environment Committee, to prioritize taking action on climate change. If I have children, or maybe grandchildren, I want to be able to tell them a story. I want the story to say something like, there was this huge problem threatening all of humanity, but we came together and we found our courage and we took action. It was difficult, but we did it. 
and you don't have to worry. We as humans are the authors of this story right now, and the plot is up to us every day. The future depends on us. Thank you. Wow. Um, well, I tracked down Aviva Gail Munsell. She's now 20 years old, and she's at York University enrolled in environmental studies. Hello, Aviva. Hello, Laura. Great to be here. What is it like for you to hear yourself from back then? It was a really great day, and it kind of brings me back to that day and that excitement and feelings of empowerment and inspiration to be a part of supporting that really important motion. It also kind of reminds me how you know, there's so much to do, and it's, it's, it's been two years, and my feelings of panic and worry for the future just kind of continue to rise. So far, there's been no lawsuit filed by the City of Toronto. That's a decision delayed at least partly by the pandemic. But Aviva still wants to see oil companies taken to court. Definitely, yeah. Um, it's so important for a number of reasons, especially the idea that they knew. Um, they knew the environmental impacts and the health impacts of their products decades before uh, the rest of us and didn't say anything. And not only did they not say anything, but promoted a lot of like individualistic um, kind of conservative lingo and blame distracting from their impact. What Aviva's talking about there is the fossil fuel giants saying consumers must take responsibility for their own role in burning their products, something she disagrees with. Just recently this year, I learned that the carbon footprint is actually a concept that came out of a oil company, a BP. Um, it kind of came out as a way of distraction and of putting some of the blame on of the crisis on individuals. And ob- obviously, reducing one's carbon footprint is important. And but really, we have to, you know, kind of look at this deeper systems change. Now, you heard Aviva's belief that oil and gas companies have made you feel as if climate change is something you need to take responsibility for. Well, there's peer-reviewed research to back up her claim. A new study from Harvard University analyzes the words and phrases employed by ExxonMobil over the past few decades. It finds the language the company used internally was very different from what it told the public. Research fellow Jeffrey Supran and Professor Naomi Oreskes are the authors of this new paper. You might also recognize Oreskes as the co-author of the book Merchants of Doubt. She and Jeffrey Supran join me now. Hello. Hello, thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be with you. At a glance, what is the main takeaway from your new paper? So um, this is the first peer-reviewed computational analysis of how ExxonMobil, as you said, has used language to subtly but very systematically shape the way the public talks about climate change. Um, and, And as it turns out, often in misleading ways. So we found, for example, that the company deploys PR techniques mimicking the tobacco industry to shift responsibility for climate change away from itself and onto its consumers. We've also found that the company uses rhetoric and framing to downplay the reality and seriousness of climate change and also to present fossil fuel dominance as reasonable and inevitable. All right, that's a good summary, and we're going to dig into each of those things that you talked about there. You actually went more than through more than 200 documents from ExxonMobil. How did you go through them? You, you mentioned that phrase, computational analysis. Um, if you can talk about that in a way people like me can understand, <laughs> what is the method that you used, and how did you avoid bias? Yeah, so these um, text databases, which comprise both the company's very public-facing communications, but also the ones it it, it uttered more quietly and internally and in academic circles. These databases are real treasure troves of information. But the trick is you have to crack the code and spot the patterns in the way they use language. And if you do that, you can reveal insights hiding in plain sight about 
for example, maybe how their public affairs teams have been working to frame the climate crisis. So we use these various um, computational techniques, basically pretty straightforward statistical algorithms, code that we run on our computer. And essentially what we do is we pass all the original text, uh, all the original communications from ExxonMobil on climate change through these algorithms and outrise um, really distinctive terms and topics that they have either emphasized or de-emphasized in, in the public domain. So it's really just the computer picking out things then. Is it, can you do it in a way that avoids bias? Yeah, so um, the most straightforward of the techniques we use are called corpus comparison algorithms. That's just a fancy way to statistically compare how often terms and topics appear in one set of documents compared to another. And these techniques actually could be done just by hand if you wanted to. It would just involve sifting through all of these documents and, for example, just counting how often they say a given word or phrase and then doing a, a bunch of um, simple mathematical calculations involving just addition and multiplication, you can figure out whether uh, the usage of that word, for example, is statistically significant. Basically, is it higher than you would expect by chance? So um, sometimes when we, t when we hear about computer research or artificial intelligence, we, we, we hear about bias because of who's programming it. But that's not the case with this kind of thing. Yeah, all of our results are based on very straightforward um, calculations that are established methods for identifying patterns in rhetoric. Yeah, I think if I could jump in here and add one other thing. So in 2004, I did the first peer-reviewed study of the scientific literature asking the question, was there a consensus among climate scientists that climate change was real, man-made, and underway? And sometimes people would ask me, well, what was my method? And my answer was, my method was reading. <laughs> so I read a thousand papers uh, and counted which ones agreed or disagreed with the consensus position. So what Jeffrey has done here, which is so brilliant, is that he's come, he's come up, uh, as he said, using existing techniques, but modifying them for our particular purpose here. He's come up with a really efficient way to count papers. Okay. And that's, that's important for reasons we'll talk about in a little bit. But Naomi, you reviewed these same documents in 2017. Why did you want to return to them? One of the questions that comes up in the whole story of the merchants of doubt, the creation of doubt about established scientific knowledge, is the question of lying. And people will sometimes say to me, well, are you saying that ExxonMobil lied? And one of the things that we've learned in our work is that much of this works not by outright lies, but by misrepresentation, by misleading claims, and misdirection of attention. And so this study, I think, really helps us to get at how that happens and how it could be the case that a company might say something which is not an outright lie, but because of the way they use language or the choice of terms, gives a very misleading impression of the state of scientific knowledge or the character of the problem. Um, yeah, if I were to, to add on that, it would just be, you know, as you noted, Laura, um, you know, in the past, we have demonstrated uh, that ExxonMobil misled the public about basic climate science and its implications. And here our focus shifts from that outright climate denial to how it has in the, own, in the company's own words evolved into what we call often discourses of delay. So how have they gone from denialism to delayism? And as Naomi was saying, this is a little more subtle and frankly insidious. Um, but that was the question the study uh, strove to ask. How beyond just outright disinformation has ExxonMobil used language in these more subtle ways to shape the way we think about climate change?
Now, the documents you use, they're a mix of internal communications as well as ones that are directed at the public. Why did you use both types of documents? Yeah, so we looked at 212 documents in total spanning 1972 to 2019. We looked at the company's public-facing communications, um, primarily something called advertorials. These are paid editorial-style advertisements concerning climate change. Um, And we looked at the ones that Mobile and then ExxonMobil took out on the op-ed page of the New York Times. But we also looked at the company's um, flagship climate change reports. These are the corporate reports that the company puts out to allay the concerns of shareholders and and the public. Um, And so these are all public-facing documents. We compared that to the company's internal company memos that have led to allegations that the company has known about the basics of climate science for decades, and also the company's peer-reviewed publications. And so the idea is really here to ask, is there a difference between how a fossil fuel company talks about climate change internally from how it represents the problem to the public? Now, I actually read your report, um, and, oh, I, I, <laughs> and, I, and I noticed um, a, a, quite a number of references to the way the language that was used in these so-called advertorials. Um, but the company stopped using advertorials in 2009, and I'm curious to know, um, you talked about the public documents that's used since then. T- tell me more about those and whether the language that's used since then is the same as it was in the advertorials. Yeah, that's right. So we look at these flagship climate change reports from 2002 to 2019. And so these really bring us all the way up to the present. And one of the really fascinating insights of our study is we see the same rhetorical patterns in both the advertorials, which come up through 2009, and the the, the flagship reports, which come up through 2019. The same trends in terms of downplaying the the seriousness and the the, um, reality of climate change and also individualizing responsibility for for sorting it out. So we actually see remarkably consistent uh, trends that are indicative of of a, of a very systematic public affairs campaign. Interesting. Okay. Yes, I do want to dig into the ex- exact <laughs> words a bit more. So the, you, you counted words, combinations of words. What came up as the most common word or use or, or combinations of words? Yeah. So one of our main findings is that ExxonMobil has used and continues to use rhetoric mimicking the tobacco industry, firstly, to publicly da- downplay the reality and seriousness of climate change by calling it a risk rather than a reality. And the second thing it does is to shift responsibility for climate change away from itself and onto consumers by publicly fixating on consumer energy, quote unquote, demand, rather than the fossil fuels that the company itself supplies. So what we found is that um, following their merger in 1999, Exxon Mobil systematically introduced rhetoric of quote-unquote, risk, as essentially a way of modifying the meaning of climate change. So to give you some sense, before their merger, so before 2000, they used the word risks once in reference to climate change. But from 2000 onwards, it appeared 46 times in these advertorials. That was roughly once per advertorial, and about 10 times higher than the average rate of an article in the New York Times. Um, To give you a different sense, we can actually search for every usage of the terms climate change and global warming in these documents, um, and then look for what terms are associated with those, which ones appear nearby. Before the merger, the most common pairings were science, gases, and debate. But after the merger, no term was more commonly associated with climate change and global warming than risks. In other words, over the 2000s, the company 
gradually shifted from explicitly promoting debate about climate science to instead calling it a risk. The problem is they never called it a reality and they have never corrected that record. Rather, what they seem to have done is change the subject. Is there anything in the internal documents that refers to this as well as a, as a deliberate strategy that you found? We have not found specific reference to this specific uh, use of risk as a, as a specific term. However, what is really interesting is that someone called Herbert Schmertz, who was uh, Mobile's uh, vice president of public affairs in the 70s and 80s, and the person who pioneered this advertorials campaign, he actually wrote in the late 80s about what he called the first guiding principle of effective public affairs. And what he said was, quote, grab the good words and stick your opponents with the bad ones. He talked about the idea of semantic infiltration, which he said was the process whereby language does the dirty work of politics. And so there are these early inklings, early hints that we would see this kind of uh, approach. And now we see it manifest in, in the documents and the data. Naomi, you sounded like you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, and I, I was going to jump in with an example of semantic infiltration. So thank you for that perfect leading, Jeff. <laughs> so one thing that really stood out to me was that that the counting uh, identified was the use of a set of words that shift responsibility from ExxonMobil, who produced these products that create climate change, to the consumer. And so there's a set of words, demand, need, use, consumption, right? That, you know, the reason we have this problem is not because ExxonMobil produces a defective product, but because we need these things. We use them, we demand them. Um, and so in a sense, when we hear these words, need, use, demand, consumption, what ExxonMobil is, is saying is, it's our fault. I mean, our fault consumers, right? They're, they're denying responsibility for their own actions and saying, what's well, the fault of the consumer? And that is reminiscent of tobacco, is it not? Correct. One of the key strategies that the tobacco industry used was to say, well, it's the choice. The smoker chooses to smoke. And therefore, if the smoker gets sick, it's their own responsibility. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You also found the word energy used a lot. And I'm wondering why that was a, a flag for you. Right. Well, there's this conflation of um, energy with fossil fuels. There's this kind of um, statement without any challenge by the company in, in public that if you, the consumers, need energy, automatically that, that basically implies the forever requirement and reliance on fossil fuels. And that's a conflation because that's not necessarily true. But the other discourses um, present within their communications essentially facilitate that narrative. So, for example, we identify um, a discourse which we call um, fossil fuel solutionism, whereby they state as fact rather than opinion that fossil fuels will be relied necessarily relied on for decades and decades to come um, that is <laughs> frankly um, partly a function of the operation of this industry which has worked to protect and defend the status quo fossil fueled nature of society so there's a kind of strange self-fulfilling prophecy to all this and we call this overall framing um, the fossil fuel savior frame 
What a phrase. I mean, <laughs> I was actually just going to ask you to talk about frames um, because you've been doing such a great job of making this so understandable. Fossil fuel savior. Um, how did you come up with that? And, and, and what more does it mean beyond what you've already told us about? Well, I, I think to kind of bring together all these different concepts we've been talking about, all of this has the, the hallmarks of what Big Tobacco did, as Naomi was saying, using the rhetoric of risk and demand to justify business as usual. The, the reasoning they used to get to those conclusions, tobacco and fossil fuels are slightly different. And yet the end result is the same. And that's that the company is presented as an innocent supplier, simply giving consumers what they demand. And in this fossil fuel savior frame, you know, ExxonMobil are the good guys who we should trust to innovate and address the risks that we, the public, have brought upon their, ourselves. It's, it's incredibly subtle and, and, and frankly a bit patronizing because it's gaslighting to insist that as facts that consumers are responsible and then present the company as a trustworthy innovator who we should rely on to, to make things better. And you have two other frames I, I'd like you to walk us through. Um, one is scientific uncertainty and the other is socioeconomic threat. Right. So this is basically as, as part of our analysis of frames, we identify uh, the key stories that all these, these terms and topics tell through, through the, the public documents. And what we find is that especially earlier on, the dominant frame is scientific uncertainty. And I think that um, the name almost uh, speaks for itself, essentially a dominance of the outright uh, climate denial that our past work and work of others has demonstrated this company has been involved in. Um, there has been this other frame of socio-economic um, uh, threat, which is essentially to promote, often through scaremongering, um, a sense that if we seriously address the climate crisis, we're all doomed. You know, that um, whether it be us uh, domestically or those who need energy abroad, again, there's this conflation. If we need energy, then we must need fossil fuels. And if we actually uh, work to reduce our, the, the supply of fossil fuels, we're all going to suffer. So there's this socioeconomic threat. Um, so those three storylines are the key narratives that um, ExxonMobil's public communications have spun over the last few decades. Naomi, I, I was struck by the suggestion in the paper that, that ExxonMobil was in effect um, grooming the public, which is the word that's used in the study. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, part of the idea of these frameworks is to create an impression of, of the company and to structure how we think about it. ExxonMobil wants us to think that they're the good guys, that first they did this good thing that by providing us with the energy we needed, and now they're doing a good thing because they're helping to figure out the solutions. And both of these frameworks are deeply misleading, if not completely false. The reality is that ExxonMobil for more than 30 years has stood in the way of climate action, in part by fighting the science in part through their lobbying efforts um, and through their advertising campaigns. And, and even today, they continue to have a business model based on the continuing use of oil and gas well into the far future. So they have not been working, acting in good faith for the last 30 years. And I think they're not acting in good faith now, but they want the American people to think that they are. And this is really important because it affects decisions that people make. And they have served to perpetuate a system that is causing huge amounts of damage, trillions of dollars um, in both direct and indirect costs, huge impacts on public health. Uh, people's homes and communities have been destroyed by extreme weather events that have become worse because of fossil fuel uh, use. Whatever else you think, though, it's, it's been a success, no? Exactly. Well, that's the point. It's been hugely successful, right? You know, the Republican Party's 2020 agenda was premised on the idea that, quote, 
fossil fuels aren't the enemy, it's emissions. And frankly, even the Paris Climate Agreement doesn't mention fossil fuels. So, you know, we're certainly not claiming that ExxonMobil alone is responsible for all of this mindset. But what our work does is start to prove that um, the fo fossil fuel propaganda has been at least one of the sources um, of this skewed biased perspective of, of overhyped personal responsibility. And, and as Naomi was saying, these narratives just are pervasive now across society. So this does apply to other fossil fuel companies then? For sure. We see um, this ev evidence and manifest in uh, PR campaigns of fossil fuel majors um, now all the time just ongoing. So, you know, one of the, one of the most powerful uh, anecdotal examples of this is that, you know, you and I, we often talk about our personal carbon footprints. Um, I think what many of your listeners may not be aware of is the very notion of a personal carbon footprint was first popularized by BP oil company in a 2004 to 2006 major US media campaign, totaling more than $100 million per year. They literally created the first carbon footprint calculator and put it on their website and pointed to it from their adverts. And, you know, this is incredibly clever uh, stuff because um, this language draws on uh, concepts which can be used in good faith and are by others, but it turns it on its head and weaponizes it, just like they've weaponized previously terms like uncertainty um, in order to fuel a sense of confusion and inaction. These criticisms aren't new. ExxonMobil has in the past talked about uh, this being a coordinated effort by activists when it comes to the kind of work that you're doing. And I'm curious what your response is to that. I, I'm going to jump in here. I think this is a beautiful example of Exxon doing exactly what we've shown they did, which is the misdirection. So instead of actually addressing the concerns, instead of addressing the claims, instead of saying, you know, I don't know, anything they might say that could potentially explain or exonerate their actions, they're trying to shift attention to us. They're trying to make it about us. But this isn't about us. This is about them and the things they did or didn't do and the things they said or didn't say. Jeffrey? we publish science and Exxon offers spin. And there's no other way to really sum this up other than Exxon is now misleading the public about its history of misleading the public. I can imagine some people who are listening to this um, and, and they'll, they, they're well used to a company saying different things to the public than they do in their internal discussions and, and know that companies spin the truth to help sell their products. And I'm wondering what you say to that, that this is all just a part of doing business. Yeah, I could answer that one. I, I think there's two things we want to say to that. I mean, one is that most products that most companies sell are not threatening the very existence of civilization as we know it. So I think we do have a right to hold the oil and gas and coal industries to a higher standard because the stakes here are so high. So if a company tells you, you know, my genes will make you feel great. Well, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Some genes do make me feel great. So it's not a lie. And it might be a matter of subjective opinion. And we know that the company is probably exaggerating how great I will feel in those genes, but it might not be entirely untrue. And in any event, if it isn't tr true, there's no great harm done to the consumer. But here we're talking about something where ExxonMobil and other fossil fuel companies have said many things that are demonstrably misleading at best, if not outright falsehoods. And what is at stake is the health, well-being, the prosperity of all of us, not just those of us who actually use ExxonMobil gas, but all of us, every single person and plant and animal on this planet is being affected by the actions of this company. And that's the other big difference. When you buy a pair of jeans, you have, you have a decision to make. 
you can decide to buy those genes or not. But none of us individually can decide whether or not to have climate change. Climate change is happening, and it's happening to a great extent because of the actions of companies like ExxonMobil. And so that puts this in a different category than the usual advertising, marketing, and spin. And the other thing, of course, is that the law is actually fairly clear on this point. Yes, advertising tends to exaggerate, and yes, we all know that, but the law does not permit people to commit fraud, and the First Amendment does not protect fraud. So if the claims of a company rise to the level of constituting fraud, that breaks the law, that crosses a line. Now, Jeffrey and I are not lawyers, so we're not in a position to judge whether what we have documented crosses that legal line, but other people are in the position to make that judgment. And so part of what motivates this work is for, for people who are in the position to make those judgments to be able to look at this evidence and determine whether or not these actions may have broken the law. And right here in Massachusetts, Maura Healy, the attorney general, has filed suit against ExxonMobil under consumer protection laws in this state. Right. And I, I did want to bring that up because there are court cases, as you say, underway in the United States against oil companies. So where does your research fit into that type of litigation? I'm a historian. Uh, Jeffrey says, I don't know, Jeffrey, what do you call yourselves these days? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I like data. I... <laughs> Jeffrey's a data okay. Da Jeffrey's a data scientist. I'm a historian. And what we're interested in is evidence, historical evidence, scientific evidence. I mean, I've set, spent my whole life studying scientific evidence and understanding how scientific evidence is used to support or reject scientific claims. And so what we see our work as doing is providing evidence to people who want to understand this issue better. And that could be ordinary people, could be citizens trying to decide how to vote or how to think about the problem, as you suggested earlier. It could be lawyers and attorneys general who are trying to decide whether laws have been broken. It could be shareholders who are trying to decide whether to hold on to their shares or sell them. And it could be institutional investors. So we think there are a lot of people who have a strong interest in knowing the truth about this history. And it's our job to do our best to show what that truth is. What if somebody's trying to, is somebody's suing or some state or, or whoever is suing, the research that you've done, how would that be applied practically? Everything that we know about the fossil fuel industry, we know based on just a few hundred documents. Um, effectively, we know all about the skeletons in the closet so far just by peeping through the keyhole in that closet. And if the litigation against the fossil fuel industry goes anything like litigation against the tobacco industry, this document discovery is eventually going to yield thousands, maybe millions of documents. And when we get to that level, um, although tobacco scholars have done a brilliant job of sifting through all of that data, um, we think that one complementary approach is to use these big data tools that we now have at our disposal in order to more quickly and efficiently um, and, and quantifiably identify the sorts of, of trends that we're now discussing. So we, we did touch on tobacco and you've drawn the parallel that the tactics echo those of tobacco companies. Why do you think that the use of the approach that some oil companies putting, uh, putting the responsibility on consumers hasn't got more attention from the public? Well, I think that most of the time the public is just busy. You know, most people are trying to live their lives. They're trying to get their kids to soccer games or get their work done or get dinner on the table. And, you know, most people don't have the bandwidth to be really paying attention and tracking these kinds of 
uh, issues. So I think one of the ways that um, Jeffrey and I understand our work, you know, what we would call ourselves to be engaged academics or engaged scholars, is that we do work that other people don't have the time or ability to do. And then as much as possible through things like talking to you and, and reaching out to your listeners, we make our findings available as much as possible in plain language where we can, mm-hmm. um, so that people can learn about these problems without having to, you know, become PhD scientists themselves. Jeffrey, last word to you. Yeah, I, I, we, we see our work as trying to uncover the truth and to understand some of this history and how it relates uh, and maybe can inform um, how society can better address the climate crisis. And hopefully we've done a good enough job of explaining it that people will will now be slightly better informed, as we are after doing this work, as to where this fixation on personal responsibility has come from. Thanks to both of you very much for your time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Now, we asked ExxonMobil for comment. It doesn't dispute the new findings. It does take issue with Supran and Oreski's previous work. A spokesman points to a study paid for by ExxonMobil that was published without peer review, considered the gold standard for academic research. ExxonMobil also says it supports the Paris Climate Agreement, and in February it launched a new business on the concept of a low-carbon solution. That's it for us this week. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have a question about climate change, let us know. Our email address is earth at cbc.ca, or you can follow the show on Twitter at CBCWhatOnEarth, or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. Thanks to our team, associate producers Serena Renner and Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.